Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Raya and the Last Dragon, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. disclaimer this is not an official disney podcast but all of these films are available to stream now on disney plus so come on watch along with us and let's learn together i'm film journalist ben travis and while i'm currently on the lookout for some drip drip drop little april showers i'm not your disneyversity lecturer no this week i'm merely tweedledum honking around in a world of weirdness as we watch through 58 films and counting my honking Tweedledee is, of course, none other than Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, how are things? How are you doing? I am alright. As we're recording this, this is the first week of my uh, Easter break from work, so that's a good thing. Don't have to see any more bloody students for another couple of weeks. Sorry, students, if you're listening to this. An appropriately Easter-y film, right? This is a film all about chasing a rabbit around. That is a good Easter activity, Also, I hear. How are you feeling about Alice in Wonderland? Is this a film that you're kind of particularly attached to in any way? This is the first one that we've got to that was on regular rotation when I was a kid. I don't think it was a favourite per se, but it's one that I'm very, very familiar with, as opposed to the other ones which I'm merely very familiar with. And I, I was a big Wonderland head as well when I got older, as like a teenager. There's pictures of me dressed as the Mad Hatter for Halloween when I was about 16, no for example. Yeah. Oh, we need to dig those out for Twitter. That has to happen. <laughs> I regret saying that already. Hang on, are we talking animated Mad Hatter? Are we talking like horrible, creepy Johnny Depp Mad Hatter? No, we're talking John Tenniel illustrations Mad Hatter. Oh, this is like, if you could have dressed up as an oldie-timey frog riding a unicycle, you would have. But instead, you had to go for the illustrations of the creepy dude in the hat. Yeah, exactly. This was a pre-Burton film, but even were it not, I would not have dressed up as the dead Mad Hatter. But this week, it's not just the two of us. In this very special Disneyversity seminar, we're joined by a guest, a queen of hearts who knows Wonderland like the back of her hand, and might not be able to make it through this podcast without wanting to chop either mine or Sam's heads off. Welcome to Disneyversity, film critic, podcaster, journalist, wittertainment super sub. It's Clarice Lockery. Hey! Off with the heads! No, we haven't even done anything yet! <laughs> I'm sorry, I thought I should make an entrance. <laughs> yeah, no, that was a grand entrance. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very, very excited to be on this episode. Oh, it's so cool to have you join us. You're our very first guest. You're the first one to enter our Wonderland of Disneyversity. Are you ready to learn some things? Are you ready to be Sam Splained? I am, because I'm a very, very, very big fan of Alice in Wonderland. But I realised while I was rewatching it, I actually don't know that much about the production because it's just always existed for me and I never asked questions about it. I just, it's always been. <laughs> That's the whole vibe of our show, like going back and think of these things that we think we know really well and going like, actually, we really don't. 
So what's your history with Disney movies then? Because back in our first episode, Sam and I both discussed the films that we grew up on, obviously the way they were released on VHS. I don't think everybody had access to all of these films. So which ones did you grow up on? Well, my relationship with Disney is quite interesting because I think my first sort of Disney experience was the parks. I really sort of grew up on the parks first and the movies second. And it's related to the fact that uh, when I was a toddler, I lived in Prague and the year was, you know, 1990, 1991. It was the transition <laughs> between Soviet Union and Czech Republic. So it was quite an odd time in history. And the city was very strange. I mean, I have very few memories of it, but um, my parents have told me that like the grocery stores, they had very odd selections of food. There wasn't really much clothing around. I was dressed in Dior because it was the only clothing. I had baby Dior on when I was a child because it was the only clothing that my parents could get. And so I think they always wanted to treat me every year to, to make sure that I had very, very positive memories as a very small child. So at Christmas time, we would go to Disneyland Paris Paris. And so, so many of my earliest memories are at that park. And for the rest of my life, I've had this very, I always want to say like a primal Freudian attachment to Disneyland. It's something I can't even explain if I'm at the parks, if I listen to the music from the parades, the fireworks, anything like something in my gut. <laughs> it's like, oh, comfort, safety, good things. Uh, so yeah, so that's what, what's interesting is that I, I always associate, that's my first association with Disney. And then, yeah, growing up, I was a pretty standard Disney kid. Mulan, Hercules, Hunchback of Notre Dame. I hit all the big ones during my childhood and was briefly obsessed with each one. And Alice definitely was always there, but I think mostly because I was also a Wonderland head. And still am. Like, I've been to Oxford and done the whole tour where you're looking. I've seen the door, the Alice door, the Alice stained glass window. Uh, <laughs> went to the Alice shop, the Alice tea room. So <laughs> that's always been a very big part of my life. And I think that is the main reason that I love this movie. Maybe not so much anything to do with the film itself, but just the fact it's Alice in Wonderland. So how does this, as a big fan of Lewis Carroll's novel, how does this stand up for you as an adaptation of that? Do you like this on its own merits? Is it is it quite close to the book? I think it's not bad. I don't think it's a bad adaptation for a Disney film where obviously with the other films they've been quite <laughs> generous and liberal with interpretations of the original story. I think this, for the most part, does stick to the main events of the book. It cuts out a few of my favourite scenes, but whatever, I'll get over it. But yeah, I think other than that, it's not my number one adaptation of all time, but it's one of my favourites. And you were mentioning there the Disney films that you grew up on. It sounds like you're very much on Sam's era, which like was just after the where I kind of dropped off because I had older siblings. So I grew up on the earlier Renaissance ones like Beauty and the Beast and... Little Mermaid and The Lion King and Aladdin and post Pocahontas is where that kind of dropped off, where we stopped really getting the VHSs, whereas Sam, I know you grew up a lot on Hercules and Hunchback and all of that stuff, but Clarice, now, these days, what are your favourite Disney films? As an adult, are there any that you have a particular attachment to these days? Lilo and Stitch. Yeah! I don't know why, but Lilo and Stitch is my favourite Disney movie. I'm obsessed with it. I love Stitch. It's like the only celebrity impression I can do. <laughs> right, you can't say that without doing oh, the no, impression. I shouldn't have no. said that. Okay, wait. We need it. Ah, Hannah Moon's family. 
that means nobody gets left behind or forgotten. So I should have explained. <laughs> I think we mentioned last week that I have never seen Lilo and Stitch. Ben can't speak to that impression. I can't speak oh, to no. that impression. So was it okay? Uh, that it was wasn't... spot on. The, the cadence, the rhythm, everything. Yeah. <laughs> I just love Stitch. I mean, if you want to adopt that voice for the whole podcast, I won't blame you. It might be quite taxing on the on the listeners' ears, but if you want to do that, if you're in the Disney zone, feel free to go with I it. I can also do oh so cute and fluffy <laughs> when he's flying on the spaceship. Very good. <laughs> They're trying to insult him. <laughs> I cannot wait to find out what this all means in about two years' time <laughs> when we finally get to Lilo and Stitch. <laughs> But that's enough from us, we're all sat down, the register's complete, and it's time for class to begin. This time, after the conservative fairy tale of Cinderella, we're tumbling into much trippier territory with 1951's psychedelic feast, Alice in Wonderland. Right, Sam, last week when we were on Cinderella, we were talking about how great it was to be back in the world of narrative after the package era, and immediately, yes, Alice in Wonderland is effectively a narrative film. But how would you sum up the plot of Alice in Wonderland as much as there is one? This this is a narrative film without much of a narrative. Can you give us a little summary? Well, Alice is sitting in the park with her sister, who is very boring. Her sister is trying to teach her the history of England, and Alice isn't having any of it. She wanders away, spies a white rabbit running into a burrow beneath a tree, and she chases after him, falls through a hole into Wonderland, Things ensue, <laughs> happenings occur, a series of bizarre encounters with increasingly eccentric and horrible <laughs> denizens of Wonderland until finally <laughs> she encounters the Queen of Hearts, narrowly avoids decapitation, and wouldn't you know it, it was all a dream. And that's it, that's the plot. <laughs> <laughs> like, that is literally it, and I think I've seen bits of this one. So I don't think we had Alice in Wonderland on VHS growing up, but I have a very specific memory of seeing it at my nana and gramps' house in Scotland on the morning of a family wedding. I think I must have been like three or four, and you know, like, everyone's getting ready in, in the house, and like, let's just plonk the kids in front of the TV, keep them amused for a bit, and I'm pretty sure the film we watched was Alice in Wonderland. I think other than that, I don't know if I've ever actually seen this, and as I started watching it, I thought, I know there are so many things, like Lewis Carroll-y things, just stuff that is in the popular culture, the images, the Queen of Hearts, the Cheshire Cat, all of that. And I had no idea how it all tied together. And it kind of just doesn't. It all just happens. <laughs> it's just madness happening from one moment to the next. Which, to be fair, is also the book. It's just different chapters of things happening to her and her just barging into people's lives and eating their food and then leaving. Which, huge mood, am I right? Huge mood, that's why I love Alice. <laughs> and the one issue with all adaptations of Alice in Wonderland is that they make her quite a sympathetic character. I would argue in the book, she's kind of a brat. She's just this very rude little girl who storms around yelling at people and wanting things and getting very annoyed because they're eccentric. <laughs> and then just eating, just eating eating anything in sight, not asking if she can have it, 
just getting her grubby hands, <laughs> shoving it into mushrooms and cakes, <laughs> and then putting it in her mouth, and then being like, "Oh, guess I'm tall now. <laughs> I'm not going to learn my lesson, though." <laughs> That's a really interesting point because in this movie in particular, she very much comes off as a victim. Like, yes, she's walking, technically she's the one walking through these people's lives, intruding into their personal space, but it always, every encounter ends with the character in question getting incredibly angry and sort of screaming at her and chasing her away, right? It's it's her going from a series of encounters where each one is more horrendous and upsetting than the last. Whereas, yeah, in, in the book, it is her moving through other people's worlds, kind of bothering them. I see. I think um, there was a bit of an element to that here. I think we'll get into it in the main discussion, but I think she she did have a bit of that brattiness or a bit of that slight kind of obstinance to her, which I, I quite liked. A, a total contrast to Cinderella, which I think will be a lot of the conversation this week. Everything about this film is a total contrast to Cinderella. But um, Clarice, did you rewatch this for the for the podcast? What was it like revisiting it? Do you remember when you last saw it? I don't. I actually don't know when I last saw. It's probably been a couple of years. But this is one of the few Disney films I actually have a physical copy of. I think it's this, Lilo and Stitch and Hercules, which probably are my three favourite. But yeah, it's, I've, I've watched it enough times that it's very familiar at this point. And because I've been on the ride a lot and I've got a lot of the merchandise, <laughs> it's interesting because I imagine, like, Ben, for you, everything that is very strange and surprising about this film is quite normal to me now. like of course there are birds that are umbrellas what do you mean that's weird (laughs) sounds legit you know okay so in terms of the background of what was happening in the the studio sam you said last week that alice in wonderland was on walt's radar for for years and years how far back does this one span and why do you think he was grabbed by this story yeah this goes way 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 back this has the longest development history of any disney film the absolute furthest back you could argue it goes is 1923. Which, what, that's 15 years before Snow White came out? Oh yeah, this is before wow. Mickey Mouse. Walt's first big breakout hit as an animator was a series of films called The Alice Comedies, starting with Alice's Wonderland in 1923. And these were loosely based on Alice in Wonderland, The premise was that you had a real human girl entering into a cartoon world, moving across backgrounds that were actually built live but looked like they were animated, and then they would also draw little animated cartoon characters against them for her to interact with. So this was, in a sense, groundbreaking. It was the first time anything like this had been done. Around this time, Walt became fixated with turning it into a feature, and actually this could have been the first Disney feature. As early as the early 30s, he wanted to make a feature-length film in this style. So once Mickey Mouse kind of took off and he had the money to do this, he thought, right, okay, let's go back and do Alice for real. Let's do Alice in Wonderland in the style of the Alice comedies with a real-life person. Although he he was after Mary Pickford, who was in our 30s at the time, so I'm not sure how that would have come off. And for various reasons, this kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed. But yeah, he was kind of fascinated with the story just in general. He's quoted as saying, No story in English literature has intrigued me more. It fascinated me the first time I read it as a schoolboy. So not one of his two most fabulous characters from Ichabod and Mr. Toad, but it was very much on his his bookshelf. Why do you think it took so long for this to happen? Um, And what, so the initial plan was for this to be sort of a hybrid of live action that you would have had a a real-life Alice in an animated Wonderland? 
they kept going back and forth. So originally, had they put this into production when they wanted to, it would have come out before Snow White and it would have been live-action Alice in Animated Wonderland. But they kept going back and forth on whether you were going to have a live-action Alice or it was going to be totally animated, uh, whether she was going to be an adult or a child. Ginger Rogers was rumoured at one point for it when she was in her 30s. Later on in the 1940s, Walt wanted to put Luana Patton in it, who we know from being terrorised by ventriloquist dummies in Fun and Fancy Free. So, yeah, they just couldn't crack the story, basically, I think. And maybe Clarice can attest to this, having seen many other adaptations, but what you also tend to see in other versions of this story is an attempt to give it a kind of overarching narrative, an attempt to have some kind of through line to it, because basically you've got this nonsense episodic story which doesn't have a real narrative or emotional through line. So, for example, they tried a story where Alice is in love with the Knave of Hearts, but the Knave of Hearts is in prison for stealing tarts. No. Can we clarify that the Knave of Hearts would have been, what, he would have been a card man? She falls in love with a with a, with a a human playing card? Well, hang on, but the Queen is a, a person, right? But then all of her people are card people. I guess it, maybe he was half and half, I don't know. Um, so he, she's trying to rescue him from the Queen, and all the other characters at the end were going to be revealed to be secretly cards in disguise who have been sent by the Queen to distract her from getting to the Nave of Hearts. So there was going to be a twist moment where like, the Mad Hatter Scooby-Doo style pulls his mask off and there's a card underneath. I hate that. I'm so <laughs> glad they didn't do it. I hate it so much. Wow. But possibly the strangest version of this, by all accounts, is the version that they paid Aldous Huxley to write. Aldous Huxley? No! <laughs> So they what they asked him to develop a screenplay? Yes, they paid him a great deal of money. It was like seven thousand five hundred dollars, but in today's money that'd be like several hundred grand to write a treatment of Alice in Wonderland, and it is by all accounts completely incomprehensible. It was called Alice and the Mysterious Mister Carroll, and it was going to be live action frame and device about. Lewis Carroll writing Alice in Wonderland and about him interacting with Alice Liddell, who's the real-life girl that it was based on, with animated inserts telling the story of Alice in Wonderland, but then also there was going to be a separate live-action story about Charles Dodgson, who is the actual man... That Charles Dodgson is Lewis Carroll. Lewis Carroll was a pseudonym, but in this version, there were going right. to be sort of two different characters with two different life stories, and they were both going to be played by Cary Grant. This this sounds like Mank meets Saving Mr. Banks. Saving Mr. Manks. The Lewis Carroll story. Why? <laughs> that does sound terrible. You can see why Disney would look at that and be like, why did we give you all this money? What have you done? Yeah, exactly. And apparently, like, they would invite him to, like, the story meetings where they were actually coming up with the character designs and stuff. And every time Aldous would say something, Walt would just look at him like he was crazy and speak over him. And yeah, that, the relationship didn't work out, basically. So, thankfully, we didn't get that version, but you mentioned uh, last week as well that it was kind of a race to the finish line between this and Cinderella as to which one would be finished first, which one would be released first. This feels like it would have been so much riskier as a comeback. Like, it's so strange. It's the complete tonal opposite of Cinderella. Did the huge financial success of Cinderella kind of help this one out, or was it basically done at that point, this coming after Cinderella in the end? 
And it wasn't basically done, I think, at the point where it became clear that Cinderella was going to be finished first, they put the resources, like, people who are currently working on Alice in Wonderland, it was like, alright, let's put everything into getting Cinderella finished, and then we'll do Alice afterwards. But it would have happened, like, Cinderella wasn't necessary for this movie to be made. But it was interesting earlier that you talked about how much of a contrast this is with Cinderella, because actually that's something Disney were trying to kind of gloss over in the market, and there was a huge push to market this as the follow-up to Cinderella. The trailer, for example, includes the lines, Remember how Snow White thrilled you? How Cinderella won your heart? Now Disney is bringing his third heroine of fiction. So it was like, Snow White, Cinderella, forget all the others, now it's Alice in Wonderland, the trilogy is complete. See, for me, this feels like a sort of sequel to Pinocchio, if anything. It feels like the mm. follow-up to that, with how kind of how lavish, but how trippy and strange and kind of dark it is at moments. And interesting as well, so I presume Alice does not count as a Disney princess. She is a Disney heroine, but not a princess? Ben, in the first ever tableau when they were launching the Disney princess brand in the 1990s, Alice was included. There's this like one image of all the princesses sitting at a table in a forest drinking tea with Alice. So I think there was this idea that she could have been one of the gang, but yeah, she's not a princess. She's like Pluto, initially part of the gang <laughs> and then they're like, not Pluto, the Disney Pluto, as in the planet that is oh, now I thought no you longer meant the a Disney planet. Pluto. <laughs> she's like a pest to the Disney princesses. <laughs> oh god, there's a dark subtext there about the hierarchy of like the princesses at the top of the town. Mm. Who's allowed to talk? I, sorry, I think about that a lot. What, that Pluto's <laughs> a dog and Goofy's a dog, but only one of them can speak? Who allowed that? Is he cursed? <laughs> that sounds like it's going to need a whole bonus episode to unpack. We'll save that one for later. <laughs> so yeah, even though Alice was never really an official part of the Disney canon down the line, they were trying to position this as another classic Disney-style musical in the vein of Snow White and Cinderella because that strategy worked so well with Cinderella itself. This is also when Disney started to get really into TV. So in 1950, there was a TV special, like an hour-long TV show promoting the film, which is one of the first times that had happened. It's basically like when you used to get those T4 making of specials back in the Northeast, do you remember that? (laughs) So that had Walt and it had Catherine Beaumont who played Alice and it had a few of the other actors as well and it was presented by our old friend edgar bergen oh no the ventriloquist weird oh my did he get the dummies back out again no of course he got the dummies out what else is he gonna do he's a ventriloquist (laughs) oh that sounds horrifying like the the weirdness of alice in wonderland meets the terrifying ventriloquist dummies of edgar bergen is just something i never need to see Okay, wow. So we've already established a lot of the weirdness, but we still have 75-odd minutes of just absolute psychedelic nonsense to get stuck into. So should we go to Wonderland? Should we do this thing? Yes. Yes. Oh, you want an answer? Of course. As with Cinderella, this one opens with a big orchestral swell. I love that we're at this point where every film begins with a big, ah, it feels very grand. But the thing that really annoyed me at the start of this movie is that so many of these classic Disney films, they begin with a shot of a book, of a book opening. It's a classic Disney trope. This is one of the films that is most famously adapted from a book, and we don't get a shot of a book. There is no Alice in Wonderland book that opens and we go into the book. What is that about? Because books are boring. That's what Alice says. (laughs) Very first thing she says. Especially books without (laughs) pictures. But this one has lots of pictures and and this title card, it's a very different sort of title card for the studio and that feels to me that's styled after the sketches from the novel, is it? Yeah, these images in the title sequence are 
the most similar, the closest we are going to get in this whole movie to the original John Tenniel illustrations from the book Alice in Wonderland. Disney bought the rights to use the John Tenniel drawings because they were still in copyright at this time, but quickly found that this style was impossible to actually do in animation. So this is the closest we get to that. Nothing's impossible. Except for that, apparently. Doorknob <laughs> yeah. says it. It's a quote Was from that your the impression film. of the doorknob? It wasn't as good as your stitch. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember how the doorknobs sound. They all sound like absolute freaks. <laughs> yeah, it's all variations of a weird English accent, and I can never remember which one's which. The other thing that's noteworthy about the opening credits to this movie is that they spell Lewis Carroll wrong. They what? do. Yeah. What, too many R's, too many L's? Not too enough few... L's. They Not say enough L's. It's C-A-R-R-O-L in the credits, whereas in real life there are two L's. My partner's surname is Carol, so I've become painfully aware of how to spell it and how not to spell it over the years. And this is not how you spell it. Was Lewis mad at that? I mean, he was probably dead at this he point, was wasn't he? He was very dead, and it wasn't <laughs> his real name. <laughs> yeah, that's fair, that's fair. Um, wow. Yeah. He was spinning in his grave. <laughs> Okay, so once we get past the credits, there is a very brief sort of framing narrative to all the Wonderland stuff, which is, as Sam said, Alice, it's a sunny day, she's sat in the branch of a tree, her very boring sister is kind of having a chat with her about books or whatever, and for a few glorious minutes, everything is normal. And I think, I don't know if this is 100% confirmed, that they are meant to be in Oxford, because you see the river and the little punting boat, and there's a clock tower in the background... And I don't know if this is a reference to the fact that at Christchurch College, to my knowledge, the clock there is always five minutes behind because previous to trains being invented, towns <laughs> would have individual time zones to more accurately Whoa. reflect how time you know, shifts across the world. And so Oxford was five minutes behind Greenwich Mean Time. And so still today, because of tradition, the clock is five minutes behind. And thus was the inspiration for the White Rabbit always being late. Maybe Wonderland is a step in for the for the sights and sounds and smells and weirdness of London. Who knows? Well, yeah, because the, the great thing about Alice in Wonderland is that there are so many interpretations of what it's meant to be. But in truth, it's just Charles Dodgson making fun of his colleagues at Oxford. So many of the characters in the situations are just him being like, oh, these guys are full of nonsense, which I really enjoy. <laughs> Eccentric weirdos. Yeah. See, this is upsetting to learn for me because I had a whole thing about this being in London because I thought that was Big Ben. <laughs> because my <laughs> knowledge of towns further south than Durham is completely to cock. So I <laughs> obviously do not know my southern clock towers uh, well enough to make that call. So I had, a whole, I had a whole thing about how, oh, this is this wonderful, beautiful pastoral oasis in the centre of London. And that's obviously big thrown right out the window but thank you for chipping in with that before I embarrass myself. I am so happy that the professor got schooled on our podcast <laughs> that makes me very happy. I'm not 100% sure but it looks like Oxford to me and it looks like the Christchurch tower. Well I've never been to Oxford and I never will. <laughs> well you got beef now because of this. <laughs> so a key part of the discussion here is Alice and her sister talking about the merits of books with pictures versus books without pictures. Guys, where do we stand on this? I am firmly in the books with pictures side yeah, of things. Pictures. Especially, come on, com you can't have comic books without pictures. I love pictures. Pictures all the way. I like books where it's a book but in the middle there's pictures. Ooh. 
Yeah. Where you get those like glossy pages. Oh yeah. That's the I stuff. I love that. And pictures from the movie. I'm reading Little Women at the moment and it's got like a full scent of just postcards of Timothee Chalamet. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm excited to get to that point where I stop reading and I just look at Timothee Chalamet for five minutes. So I need to get myself that version. <laughs> it's great. I would very much recommend that copy. And Alice is there imagining her own world uh, sat in this tree, a world where all the flowers would have extra special powers. I think she's already in that world. There are flowers with some very special <laughs> powers that she seems to be under the influence of. But yeah, something that stands out, I think, immediately from this scene is that Alice has a lot more personality than many of the other Disney characters we've met so far. She wants something. She wants to escape. She wants to be somewhere more fanciful, especially compared to Cinderella, who we said obviously has a bit more personality than Snow White, but still is kind of a passive participant in her own story. I feel like this is one of the first Disney stories where we've got a character who really wants something and is driving the plot by trying to get somewhere else. Yeah, and another thing is that the sister looks like Cinderella, right? You actually get to see that contrast in action because you've got Alice, who not only has more personality than Cinderella, but also has more personality in terms of her design, with her more kind of childlike, wide-eyed features. And then you've got this sister who looks like she's dropped in, I don't want to say out of a Disney princess movie, because there's only been two, and one of them was Snow White, but she looks like she's dropped in out of Cinderella. And it's almost as if the animators working on this film were pitching it, many of whom were the same animators working on Cinderella, but they they were pitching it in direct opposition to that style. Like, yes, we can do the realistic princess thing, but we can also do all of this crazy stuff that you're about to see. And the sister here, she represents the past. She's reading from a history book. She is what you would call a square. Because obviously, even though this precedes the hippie movement by a decade, and even though one must stress that it's very unlikely that anyone making this was on drugs, this is still a very psychedelic movie. And I think a lot of what Alice is singing about in this song that we're about to get to is very hippie-ish as well, right? She's singing about the flowers having powers, flower power, peace and love. And she's making a flower crown. Exactly. Very Lana Del Rey. Proto Lana Del Rey. (laughs) Yeah, she's singing about, I could listen to a babbling brook and hear a song that I can understand. She wants to be at one with nature. She wants to be at one with the natural world, as opposed to in this, you gather more kind of urban, more upper crust world from which her sister hails. So I'm going to be making little links like this all the way through because you can't really help it, right? Links between this and like psychedelic culture and hippie culture. It's all there. Yeah, that, it feels like that's not subtext. That's not like, oh, if you like look into it and you read into it, it's it's so it's so on the nose. A lot of the like weird druggy trippiness. In terms of the songs, I was really surprised that there were songs in this. I didn't know there were going to be songs in this movie. And I have to say, who knows? Maybe on repeat listens, they are bangers. But none of the songs really stood out to me. And I think it's quite significant that you don't think of songs when you think of Alice in Wonderland. You think of the visuals rather than the music. But there are various songs through this film, and I can tell Clarice is already mad that I don't like the songs. I love the songs. I feel like they're so underrated because they're so strange and they fit the tone. They sound like nursery rhymes. I love Catherine Beaumont's little voice. Cats and rabbits. Like it's so silly (laughs) (laughs) and posh in English. (laughs) I adore the songs. There's 19 songs in this, Ben. There's more songs here than any other Disney movie by miles. 
That is crazy. I don't know if I could name a single one of them. What? <laughs> yeah, like you... it was just—it was like a constant background presence in the film. But I think I do agree with Clarice that they feel like they have a similar flow to the film in that it's like it's not choruses, it's not bangers, it's like a constant stream of lyrical strangeness, which is kind of what this film is as well. There are two or three songs in this movie that would make it into my top ten songs that we've heard so far easily. Ooh, mm. and is this opening one one of those? Or? Yeah, I think so. It's really beautiful and childlike and lilting and it was going to be a different song it was going to be more of a ballad and indeed that music made it into peter pan uh, the second start of the ride started life as a ballad for alice to sing at this moment but they decided to give her this a bit more upbeat song so that we weren't starting the movie on a bum note but it's really gorgeous and it's really apt for the situation that we find ourselves in Okay, so we've had our opening, we've had our initial song, we've met Alice and her boring sister, and the thing that really kicks this into gear is the entrance of the White Rabbit. Alice is there dreaming of a more fanciful life, and suddenly she sees a white rabbit with a pocket watch and a little waistcoat running around talking about being late for a very important date, and she follows him. She tumbles down the rabbit hole, and straight away we're into the plot of this movie. Last time, with Cinderella, we had 20 minutes of mouse antics before anything really kicked in. This one gets straight to the point. I like that as Alice tumbles down the rabbit hole, Dinah, her little cat, doesn't come along. She just looks down like, screw this, I'm not coming down the rabbit hole. She waves! That's my favourite detail of this entire movie. The cat waves goodbye as Alice falls to her death. Because the cat doesn't know that Alice isn't about to die. (laughs) And the cat's not coming in. Like, she is very pleased to see Alice having a nice time, but she's not coming to join. (laughs) (laughs) And as Alice tumbles down the rabbit hole, immediately the trippiness begins. We get all these woozy colours. Alice is sort of floating down with her dress. There are clocks chiming. There's distorted mirrors straight away with the wonderland stuff we're into kind of warped shapes and colors and crazy perspectives of of things it immediately sets the tone of everything that's going to come for the next hour and 10 minutes this is the thing that the actual elements that disney picked out from the book i think are very well rendered like i think this is a very accurate depiction of what lewis carroll describes is all the bits of furniture (laughs) and the sort of like it's a house it's a hallway but it's vertical like that's always the sense that I got from the book. And what about the first kind of proper Wonderland sequence? Because we get straight into one of the most famous things from the film, but also, I guess, from the book as well. One of the most iconic things that you think of when you think Alice in Wonderland, which is the little bottle that says, drink me. She's trying to get through the tiny door, but obviously she's way too big. There is the little bottle on the table saying, drink me. There is a little wafery thing that says, eat me. And she's changing sizes. That is like quintessential Alice in Wonderland. Does that come this early in the book? And do you think that's a faithful rendering of that sequence? What I find really interesting about this adaptation is the fact that it's part of the text that this is a dream. There's no question about it. I think in the book you can interpret it however you want but in the film it's very much this is Alice's own creation and so the difference that I found interesting in the sequence is that when she arrives in the hallway it's not so much that the table and the key and the drink bottle and the the little box with the biscuit in it are already there it's that they appear randomly as they come up in conversation which feels very dreamlike like those are the logics of a dream that something doesn't exist until it's necessary for the story so that I, I found interesting. I don't know if I prefer it. I think I prefer the book version where it's just, it is Wonderland. 
but it's an interesting difference. Doorknobs new as well, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a doorknob on the door. Of the, I guess yeah. the doorknob doesn't talk. In the... this, this doorknob's a little guy. He likes to make puns about <laughs> being a doorknob. And who wouldn't? <laughs> that's, that's all I've got to say about him. I'm glad he's there. <laughs> that's a, a fine addition to me. It's, it's a plus up. It's funny then because... In the logic of when she becomes very, very small after drinking and and crying and then becoming small again and nearly drowning, she goes into his mouth. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. She she doesn't ever get the key. She like floats through. And we're talking about how quickly this film gets going. She's followed the rabbit down into Wonderland. She's drank the thing and gone massive. She's eaten the little wafer and gone tiny. She's cried an ocean of tears and floated around in a bottle. We're ten minutes into the film. You just full on straight into the weirdness right from the off. It's non-stop. It's just thing <laughs> after thing after thing. Which is how I like it. <laughs> because from here, yeah, she floats through the door. And my next note here is nautical dodo, what is happening? There are lobsters doing the backstroke. You've got another sort of musical number, aquatic things are happening and there's a dodo at sea i mean the ambition in this already feels huge it's already non-stop weirdness and imagination and kind of crazy effects shots and stuff well because this is the caucus race chapter of the book where they deleted the rat which you know whatever i think i can't remember whether he's a mouse or a rat but um the big part of the book is the caucus race which is where you just run in any old direction and that's the game. <laughs> so it's a race, but not everybody is racing in the same direction or in the same way. Exactly. And they do it to get dry after the big flood. And I think caucus race, it's meant to be a political satire of um, the uselessness of politicians and how they're, they're never in sync and they're always just running around in random directions. You see, it's all, it's all satire. It's not just silly nonsense or drug stuff very clever <laughs> it's silly nonsense and drug stuff with a little smidge of political commentary just in there a little bit of political commentary but it's not even that smart it's just aren't politics silly <laughs> politicians huh am i right Eh, they're like dodos i actually think disney pushes the satire further than it goes in the book because here we have this setup whereby the dodo is standing on a kind of big rock and everyone's running around the rock and if you're running around the rock you're trying to get dry but you're constantly getting splashed whereas he is on the rock he remains dry and so he's shouting at everyone to keep running to get dry and Alice says but nobody could possibly get dry here because we're all getting splashed and then the dodo says nonsense I'm as dry as a bone already if you're already standing on the peak then it feels to you like anyone could get there it feels to you like anyone could get dry but actually the people trying to get dry they're stuck in the rat race they're stuck running around they don't have time to get dry because they're constantly being splashed yes the dodo is the elite the dodo is the elite. The dodo, once again, is a square, which I find really interesting because Alice, our kind of hippie protagonist, our countercultural protagonist, thought she was going to get away from squares in Wonderland. She thought she was going to leave her boring sister behind, and in Wonderland, everything was going to be exciting. It's just going to be cats in trousers, and anyone can do whatever they want. But no, you're going to meet a bunch of weird people, all of whom are actually representatives of the system, representatives of the old ways of doing things. Okay, speaking of weird people then, the next chapter in the story is when Alice meets Tweedledum and Tweedledee. And throughout this podcast, throughout the films that we've watched so far, there has been a low-level thread of characters whose buffoonery I could not sanction. And I have to say, 
the honk honking tweedledum and tweedledee that was buffoonery that i really really struggled to sanction they are two absolute little freaks um uh, who, what do you guys think of tweedledum and tweedledee do you like these characters it's a bit much in it yeah. <laughs> they are a bit they are just too much you know the chaotic energy that they exude is just on top of all the other chaotic energy in this film is a lot to handle yeah and they're just very aggressive with their weirdness at least the you know the the latter characters are sort of just minding their own business and alice doesn't shoot i feel like tweedledee and tweedledum they're like going up to her and saying hey let us annoy you yeah she's trying to get away and they're like no 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 stay watch us have a battle that kind of thing <laughs> that was a good impression i'm, I'm loving the impressions this week guys <laughs> oh, it's, it's not the last one you'll hear while we're on the topic of the voice actually and um, they were played by an actor called j pat o'malley doing an impression of george formby but J. Pat O'Malley was Dick Van Dyke's vocal coach for Mary Poppins. He was an actual Cockney man, and yet he helped give the world Dick Van Dyke's Mary Poppins accent. Oh my god, does I'm he know what he did? <laughs> <laughs> is, is he aware of what he's done? Do you think he was there on set the whole time, just like, Dick, come on, we've spoken about this. You've got to change that up, you've got to do more, you've got to do less. There are adjustments to be made. Mary Poppins! <laughs> I love it. I'm sorry. No regrets. Oh, God. So the function that Tweedledum and Tweedledee play is that as well as just being a couple of little oddballs, they tell Alice the story of the walrus and the carpenter, aka the story of the curious oysters. And my main note on this was just that those oysters were cute as hell. I loved them. They just wanted to be left alone at the bottom of the ocean. They were cool little guys. And then the walrus ate them all. What a bad dude. Yeah, talking about cabbages and kings. What was going on in this story? Like, I think something that's interesting is that you have stories within stories within stories stories so alice is obviously in her own dreamland she's meeting characters like tweedledum and tweedledee and they on top of that are telling her other stories within dreams within fantasy worlds what's the point of the walrus and the carpenter story any subtext of that went over my head just that the walrus was a bad guy (laughs) there's no point ben don't look for actually clarice is looking like she knows the point so i'm gonna let her take it i don't think there's any deeper subtext apart from it's a bit of a stranger danger story well the way that tweedledum and tweedledee tell it is the way that they lead into it is oh alice is curious the oysters were curious too so this is almost yeah like a cautionary tale for alice about being too curious but that feels like something disney's kind of grafted on to the original poem yeah i feel like it's kind of in the original poem because a lot of the dialogue in that fantasy sequence is just excerpts from the poem which was written in sunderland by the way that's my hometown connection um have you been to sunderland on your lewis carroll tour not yet (laughs) well you absolutely should this was supposedly written by carroll on one of his many trips to Sunderland to visit his cousins and is inspired by the beaches of Whitburn and Seaburn where I grew up and we have a park with a walrus statue in it to commemorate that fact. Oh I want to see it! I'm going. Mm. I'm seeing the Walrus statue. I love that Lewis Carroll was inspired to write Alice in Wonderland and the Walrus and the Carpenter. And Sam, you were inspired to write an academic text on Trek. This is what happens when you grow up uh, around the beaches of Sunderland. I will say, though, very difficult to find a good oyster in Sunderland. I don't know where I would start. I'm a fan of oysters. I like to eat oysters. You're a monster like the Walrus. Yeah, I know. I don't know why I like oysters so much because this was the most traumatic scene in the movie for me when I was a kid. Or, like, definitely this is the first one that you get to where I think something really genuinely upsetting happens. I have images of the walrus and in particular of the carpenter when he gets really really angry and starts chasing after the walrus which reminds me of Donald Duck and his hungry rampage 
axe-wielding rampage in Fun and Fancy Free. He's got a real Donald Duck rage to him, that guy has. So after Tweedledum and Tweedledee have told their crazy story, Alice finally manages to escape them, and she encounters the rabbit again. She enters the rabbit's house. The colours here are absolutely gorgeous. I think Mary Blair, again, is behind a lot of the colours in this film, and they just are beautifully chosen, you know? Yeah, there's a lot of gorgeous sketches of this sequence in particular from Blair. And this is again where the size-shifting Alice comes into it. She enters the house, she blows up, she's massive, her arms and legs are spewing out of the windows of the house. Enter my favourite character in the whole thing a cockney lizard with a ladder called bill yeah i immediately sensed that this would be a sam summer's favorite he's the only likable character in the movie he's the only guy who you would ever want to meet in this entire film and he doesn't last long people like this nice guys don't make it very far in wonderland no he gets projected into the sun gets launched into oblivion (laughs) like team rocket blasting off again probably dead What's he doing? He's, he's like trying to climb down the chimney to get Alice out of the house because they think it's a monster. Mm-hmm. And because he kicks up loads of such, she sneezes, sending him into orbit. Uh, although actually, I think I know where he ended up. I think he flew out of Wonderland and landed in Victorian London. And I know that because he later pops up in Basil the Great Mouse Detective in Ooh. 30 years and many movies time. Oh my god, I can't wait to meet him again. He was just a cool dude. He was the only one who seemed to have his own thing going on. Everyone in Wonderland is just caught up in their own crazy nonsense. Bill, he has a ladder, he's doing jobs, he's doing odd jobs around. I I respect that in this world of madness, he's created his own niche, he has a job, he has a purpose. And yeah, as you say, he is immediately punished for that and launched into the sun. So what does that tell you? Well, he's also the working man, isn't he? Being exploited by the bourgeois rabbit and Dodo, right? Sending him in there to sort out their problems, sending him in there to deal with the monster that they're too scared to face. And then they just decide to burn the house down. Well, the Dodo decides to burn the house down. Yeah, that does not strike me as a good plan. But thankfully, Alice eats a carrot and that makes her small again. Logic. Things. Happening. And now we've gone from Alice being huge to being absolutely teeny again. And she leaves the house. She finds herself in, again, another wonderland of plants and flowers. And this is when, like, the next level of trippiness in this film really kicks in for me. She's wandering through the undergrowth. All these flowers start talking to her and singing to her. Some of them have really terrifying faces, like the little ones with the overly detailed, kind of grouchy faces. Ooh, little weirdos. But yeah, I love the way they anthropomorphize these flowers, even if so many of them are are cursed. I feel like this really makes the most of the possibilities of animation, that you take these characters and give them features and give them personalities, and each different flower has its own personality and voice based on what the flower looks like. I thought that was so smart. And the dandelion dog. I love the the pets as well, because it's a whole community of the sort of gossiping older women and then the children who you kind of imagine have been put in playtime pen, but they keep interrupting. And then there's the guard dog at the end, snapping at her heels. It's such a beautiful song as well, I think. Is this on your list, Clarice? I love this song so much. I do. I think it's not my favourite, because I really like the Alice songs, the ones that she sings to herself, and a certain other song coming up that's the most famous, but... Because this is quite similar to the song from Bambi, I feel like. Oh, okay, yeah, kind of one of those pastoral, lilting, romantic ballads. Yeah, that's definitely true. I think I also like it because this is like our first genuine respite in this movie. It's our first little break. We're going to just sit down and chill out and watch a nice song happen. We're finished dealing with all of these horrible, angry guys for a second. (laughs) 
Until it suddenly isn't, of course, until the flowers turn on her like everybody else. So yeah, they turn on Alice like everybody else does, and specifically they seem to turn on her because, well, they initially think she's a flower, and then she says she's not a flower, so they assume she must be a weed. And they scream at her because they don't want weeds to populate the garden. And again, this is the flowers, which she initially was singing about wanting to have very special powers. Ooh, flower power, peace and love, right? Obviously, people at home can't see I'm holding my... um. You're doing little peace hands. <laughs> I'm trying to be Ringo Starr, but I feel like I look more like Richard Nixon when I do it, <laughs> um, which is the opposite. So these flowers, again, though, despite obviously those connotations associated with the still-to-come hippie movement, they are also huge squares. And in this case, they are racist, they are prejudiced, they represent like old-timey, proper manners, etc. that basically middle-class kind of posh women, right? I just think it's interesting that this world that she discovers isn't as progressive as she hopes for in her original song. And all of the characters that she's met so far, the rabbit, the dodo, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, the flowers, they are all representative of the same kind of conservative rules that she just came from. They're trying to push these rules onto her. And I think it goes back to something I said before about this book. It's interesting because so many interpretations of Wonderland have been, it's very much inside her head, it's her imagination, it's madness. But I think, you know, when you actually look at the characterization like that, it's no, it's Wonderland is a reflection of the absurdity of Victorian society. Like That was what the point of the book is that he wanted to, again, secretly make fun of everyone he knew in Oxford. <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely. Oxford, the most kind of upper class conservative place in England, in my imagination. Sorry to the people of Oxford. Look, I'm from the North, okay? I work in the <laughs> academic sector. I have prejudices towards Oxford. I can't help it. But yeah, that's the world Lewis Carroll's coming from. Obviously, Walt Disney himself comes from a different kind of conservative environment from rural America. Yeah, it feels like even though all of what we're seeing is, is trippy and crazy and all of these characters are in a sense absolutely wild, they're also very conservative and representative of the kind of thing Alice was trying to break away from. She's our progressive, they are the ones holding us back and in doing so they do reflect the absurdity of the societies in which these texts were created. That's what I love about doing this show because I look at this and see crazy nonsense and you guys see smarter things than me and now I feel smarter as a result. But having met these kind of crazy horrible flowers, we now meet one of the strangest, trippiest characters in this whole thing, which is there's a caterpillar guy, he's getting stoned, he's chanting the vowels of the alphabet over and over and creating these kind of puffs of smoke. This is one of those things where, as I was saying earlier on, it's not just that you go like, oh no, if you actually look closer at Alice in Wonderland, there's all this kind of weird, woozy, psychedelic, druggy stuff. Like, no, it is completely on Front Street. This guy is like full on smoking and creating all of this weirdness around him. He struck me as one of those, you know, those awful people who'll vape right in your face because he keeps blowing all that smoke at Alice. He's like really puffing at her and it always like leaves these little clouds of, of stuff that makes her cough around her head. Yeah, he is one of the weirdest characters we meet in this film, and that is saying something. I guess it's whatever the Victorian equivalent in, like, the opium dens. It'd be the vape version if that person was inside an opium den. <laughs> and also a caterpillar. <laughs> and also a caterpillar. <laughs> Who are you? Who are you? And yeah, I mean, that's the question, right? Who are you? Who, who am I? 
that's the question he asks her that's the question she's forced to ask herself he asks her to recite a poem and she says that I can't remember things as I used to it's almost like she's losing herself as she gets deeper and deeper into Wonderland that's not something I feel really gets drawn out enough because I think that's a very interesting idea but I thought that was the implication of this scene I mean maybe she's losing herself because he keeps blowing crazy smoke in her face that would make anyone confused he's responsible for her going through her next transformation he's the one who literally again there is no drug subtext here it is all just full-on text because he tells her to eat the mushroom <laughs> and the eating the mushroom it'll make her big it'll make her small she's trying to figure it'll out make her high it'll make her high he literally says the word high and he says i'm exactly three inches high and he seems a little higher than that mm-hmm. he seems sky high to me so this is our first character who is explicitly a substance user right And he is also our first character who isn't, I'm going to use that word again, square. This guy is totally hip and groovy. And the poem that he asks Alice to recite, the poem that she initially starts reciting, How Doth the Little Busy Bee, that's the opening line of a didactic Victorian poem called Against Idleness and Mischief that was meant to teach kids to behave. And he says, no, that's not how you do it. And this comes from the book. He says, it goes like this, How Doth the Little Crocodile? And he recites a parody of the poem. This is something I don't think viewers in the 1950s, especially in America, would have been familiar with because this Doth the Little Busy Bee poem has been lost to time. You know, how do you parody? something that people don't remember but it was in the carol so Disney has kept it but this is the first character who is genuinely subversive he's taken an aspect of this like proper Victorian culture and he is subverting it he is changing it he is recreating it remixing it so if all of the other characters so far have been parodying Victorian culture by representing it, he is parodying this conservative culture by subverting it personally himself. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he's also the first character who is a drug user. See, I love that you watch this film and that's what you're thinking about. And for me, when Alice eats half of the mushroom and goes massive, I was like, oh my god, she looks like a kaiju. We're recording this <laughs> as Godzilla vs. Kong has just been released. And I'm like, give me Godzilla vs. Kong vs. Giant Alice. That is a scrap that I would want see. <laughs> I want that so much. And yeah, so she's trying to figure out one side of the mushroom will make her big, one will make her small. She keeps eating bits and it's sending her all the wrong sizes. Again, the drugginess, she licks the mushroom and it gets her just the right size. It's all about moderation, guys. This is actually a drugs PSA. It's telling you in moderation. Look, if you are going to do it, just be very careful. Have the right amount. But yeah, the caterpillar, he turns into a butterfly, he flies off, And Alice is still in a very adult state, I think, from her mushroom intake, because this is when she meets, I think, the strangest character in the whole film, which is the absolute freak himself, the Cheshire Cat. Again, buffoonery could not sanction weirdness, strangeness. Like, I respect how strange the Cheshire Cat is, but he really freaked me out. The way he enters with his harmonica mouth and his swirly eyes, the way he's kind of appearing and disappearing while he swooshes his tail. I'm kind of so impressed with the animation here and also just like, this is such a strange character. I love him. Right, because it feels like this guy has a really big legacy in the pop culture. Like, the Cheshire Cat is a huge deal. That design is so iconic. What do you love about the Cheshire Cat? I'll be honest, I think it it goes back to that very simple child thing of feeling like a weirdo growing up, feeling very, you know, unusual, why do I act differently to everybody else? And then reading this book and seeing this film and (laughs) seeing a character that strange and who's really proud of it, the fact that he Mm. tells Alice, well, we're all mad here, so... (laughs) 
get used to it, Alice. I I like that. It was kind of the first time I'd seen a character that was weird and just proud of it. Yeah, he has that line where he says, I'm not all there myself, and he's physically unravelling as he says it, but he's totally chill about it. He's like, that is his whole deal. He's accepted it. It's like a very positive image, like mental health. Like, you know, embrace it. Be proud of it. Be proud of who you are. I loved the cat when I was a kid as well. And actually this time round, he did unsettle me a little bit more and I think it's a lot of it's to do with the voice. Ben, did you recognise the voice? Uh, I feel like I should have done and it's not, oh god, it's not Edgar Bergen, is it? It's not Edgar Bergen, oh, no. Thank the Lord. Clarice, did you recognise the voice? No. Oh, poor, poor students. I mean, Clarice, <laughs> you get a pass because you've this is your first class. Ben should know this. Do you berate all your students like this? Yes, it's Sterling Holloway. Oh, oh, I feel like as a lecturer, I'm not coming across very well in this particular episode. (laughs) It's Sterling Holloway, right? He has so far been the stalk from Dumbo and flower from Bambi. And he narrated segments in the package features as well. Mm -hmm. He is going to be Carr in the Jungle Book and Roquefort the Mouse in the Aristocats. He was... The guy with the most appearances in Walt Disney animated films, certainly of this era. And I think this might be his best performance. Oh, apart from Pooh. Pooh is his best performance, obviously, by Miles. Winnie the Pooh. I realised how that sounded (laughs) when I said it. Cheshire Cat, close second, I think. It's really kind of creepy and weird. And he puts lots of different, bizarre inflections into all of these lines. And the way that he's always singing to himself. He's singing, of course, the opening lines of the Jabberwocky, another Lewis Carroll poem. Twas brillig in the slithy toves. And in fact, Ward Kimball, the guy who animated the Cheshire Cat, said that he actually considered him the craziest character, the maddest character in the movie, because all the other directors were trying to push themselves, trying to outdo each other in terms of how wild these characters could be. But with the cat, he went a bit more subtle. He's the maddest thing in the movie by virtue of his kind of coolness in the face of all the insanity around him. And there's something about um, Sterling Holloway's performance where he's speaking calmly, but it sounds almost like he's laughing at the same time. There's something really clever about that voice Mm, performance. Constantly. Uh, oh my god Ah. is that what i think it is it scared the absolute crap out of me but i think that might be the alarm for the nine old man of the week that's the nine old man of the week alarm baby so today i'm gonna talk a little (laughs) bit about ward kimball who animated the cheshire cat and he animated the tweedles and he animated the entirety of the mad tea party sequence as well and of all the nine old men kimball was the one who is the best known for wacky comedic roles and he's also the most stylistically original and daring so for example he did Jiminy Cricket in Pinocchio he unfortunately did the crows in Dumbo he did the Picos Bill sequence in whatever the hell movie that was in Melody Time there we go I remembered he did the three caballeros dance sequence the three caballeros that one And he animated Lucifer in Cinderella. If you look at the contrast between the cartooniness of Lucifer's animation versus most of the other characters in Cinderella, you can see that this is a guy who pulls out all the stops in service of pure comedy and entertainment with little regard for realism. So we'll talk a little bit more about what he did with the Mad Tea Party when we get to it. But this is a guy whose stylistic sensibilities put him at odds with Walt often. He had a kind of love-hate relationship with him, so... On the one hand, I talked last week about how Walt Disney was obsessed with trains in the 1950s and actually it was Kimball who put him onto trains because Kimball had a full-size train in his garden. 
He had America's first backyard railway. It was called Grizzly Flats Railroad, and it has its own Wikipedia article. And Kimball used to have parties called Steam Ups, where you would come <laughs> and have a barbecue and ride the train. That sounds absolutely incredible. What would you have to do to get an invite to a Steam Up? Get me in. It helped to be Walt Disney. <laughs> uh, so Walt came to the parties. Walt was always cracking on with Ward about trains. And this is how Walt got really into trains, which down the track, if you will, led to the creation of Disneyland. That's kind of the butterfly flapping its wings in, in that story. Kimball also found himself gradually excluded from feature films after Alice because the studio as a whole was pushing more and more towards realism and he started making more experimental films. There's a brilliant short called Toot Whistle Plunk and Boom which is all about, it's meant to like teach kids about music but it's done in this very minimalist, modernist style and it won an Oscar which Walt accepted. Walt got all the Oscars for whatever the animators did at this point but Walt kind of privately was apparently he wasn't happy with the style stylistic divergence that Kimball made on that film. So he kept phasing the guy out. Can you watch that short on Disney Plus? The the Kaplunk, Kaplinky, Plunky one? Is that on Disney Plus? Toot Whistle, Plunk and Boom. You cannot watch it on Disney Plus uh, because apparently Walt's legacy of distaste for this film (laughs) continues. But it is on YouTube and I would definitely recommend seeking it out. So yeah, he eventually left the studio. He did a few things for TV. He did a few things for the Disneyland TV show in episodes based around space travel. He was like doing diagrams of space flight and stuff like that for those and Walt eventually put him on to direct the 1960s live action musical Babes in Toyland but when the studio started publicising it as a Walt Kimball film instead of a Walt Disney film Walt kicked him off because he thought it was getting above his station so to speak train pun yeah so (laughs) that was pretty much it for him at Disney his last great work, not for Disney, was a short called Escalation, which is a really searing and visually bold Vietnam protest film, which you can also watch on YouTube. Uh, that was our nine-year-old man of the week. And again, give us his name. Ward Kimball. Ward Kimball. We toot our train horn at you or something? <laughs> something like that. Okay, so you just mentioned that something Ward Kimball worked on was the Mad Hatter's Tea Party, and that is the next part of the story. This is the next encounter that Alice has. Uh, The March Hare, the Mad Hatter, again, quintessential Alice in Wonderland stuff. And Clarice, you mentioned there's a song you love here. I imagine that's the Very Merry Unbirthday song. Ah, Very Merry Unbirthday to you, to me, to me, to me, to me. It's so delightful, and I adore the concept of an unbirthday. I've never celebrated it, though. (laughs) Today, I believe for all of us, is one of our own birthdays. It is! Oh, no. Let's get cake! I love oh, the Oh, merry on birthday to you! <laughs> what do we make of that Mad Hatter voice? It's a choice, I will say. Alright, Ben. The guy's name is Ed Wynn, okay? And this is, I always love it when Ben like accidentally stumbles across someone that I'm obsessed with on this podcast. <laughs> the guy's name is Ed Wynn, and he was a huge favourite of Walt Disney's. He was like a popular comedian at the time, with a very distinctive voice. And he was constantly invited back. He's not in any other Disney animated movies, but he's in loads of Disney live action movies. So most famously, he was the crazy laughing uncle in Mary Poppins. Just a spectacular voice, obviously also the basis for Alan Tudyk's characterization of King Candy in Wreck-It Ralph. Obviously. I didn't make that connection, of course. So just a great guy, absolute legend, voice of an angel, and... As in Cinderella, this scene was, and a lot of Alice in Wonderland actually, was entirely filmed in live action beforehand. So they had the other guy as well, the March Hare, Jerry Colonna, and they had Catherine Beaumont playing Alice. And there was a lot of improvisation, and 
part of Ward Kimball's job was to keep up with the improvisation of these comedians and animate characters who matched their kind of movements and mannerisms while also engaging in a lot of kind of crazy cartoony stuff like the bit where the March Hare is pouring some tea and then his ears turn into scissors and clip the tea or like the bit where the Mad Hatter says he'll have half a cup and then chops his cup in half and it's literally half a cup Oh, that stuff's so great. And that's the kind of stuff that Eric Goldberg, who animated the genie in Aladdin, was really, really praised for doing. Like, you've got this crazy improvisational comedian and you've got an animator who's able to keep up with them and able to turn everything they say into some wild visuals. And that's started here with Edwin and Ward Kimball on Alice in Wonderland. This is my favourite scene in the movie, I think, because of what you said the number of visual jokes in the scene and the fact that it goes so quickly and it really captures the sensibility of those characters. Like it's a sort of just constant moving, constant activity, constantly changing subject. And I I love it. I love that energy. That's how I find that I live my life sometimes. So I connect to it. I feel like I could live there happily. (laughs) It's kind of the climax of the whole movie in terms of the pace of the madness, right? There's been barely any respite from it so far, but this is where it really gets cranked up as far as it can go, where it's just constant, constant, oppressive, almost in its chaos. And the thing that I like is that Alice at this point basically taps out. She gets mad at the Hatter in the hair. And again, this comes back to, for me, her having a personality. She's inquisitive and she's imaginative, but she's also stubborn and she's quite short-tempered. And she's like, enough of this nonsense. None of this makes sense. I like that even for her, this is kind of a step too far. For me, the step too far was, I quite enjoyed the weirdness of the March Hare and the Mad Hatter, but there is like this little stoned mouse who, oh, I did not like that guy. Give me Gus Gus any day if we're talking Disney mice. Uh, Sam, I don't know how you feel about that as the anti-Gus Gus stan. I don't mind him. I would definitely, I feel like this is going to be the real rivalry of this podcast. <laughs> Team Dormouse versus Team Gus Gus because... I like this guy, man. This guy's cool. He's vibey. Yeah, I love him. He's just sitting there in his teapot getting absolutely mortal. I'm not a um, substance guy myself. So, Ben, when you said stone, I might defer to you. But I, I saw this guy as being drunk the way he just pops out like, oh, yeah, twinkle, twinkle, little bat. I mean, I'm not really a substance person either, but the way that his eyes were kind of half closed and he was really like woozy and just like chilled while all this madness was happening around him, that read more stoned than drunk to me. And the craving of jam the, to calm him down. They mm. just give him jam. It's got the munchies. Exactly. <laughs> Which I think that's a good tactic to adopt. Next time any one of us is mad, let's just have some jam and see how we feel, you know? And Next time any of our watches are broken as well, let's just spoon jam in there too. Yeah, the watch, that was one of the most vibrant sequences of the film for me. Like, colours exploding while they're, yeah, shoving jam in the watch and bashing it with stuff and clearly breaking it to all hell. And poor White Rabbit just dying He's like looking at his watch like, no, my watch! (laughs) My unbirthday present. He's not a very lucky guy because as well you have to be aware that when he gets home he's going to find a smoking crater because the dodo is busy burning his house down. (laughs) (laughs) This is a terrible day for him. Alice's day kind of, yeah, continues to get weirder and maybe worse from here. She wanders into Tulji Wood because I think it's obliged at this point, if you have a Disney movie, there has to be a scene where our hero walks into some woods and eyes stare at them out of the darkness. That has to happen at some point in every Disney movie. This is the scene in Alice in Wonderland where that happens and this is the point that Alice says something which for me was the biggest mood in the whole film she says it would be so nice if something would make sense for a change 
<laughs> she's surrounded at this point by umbrella vultures and shovel birds. There's an owl with an accordion neck. Just the non-stop weirdness continues. Who's everyone's favourite Tulji Wood animal? Oh, the favourite in the whole film. The Momraths. I love Ooh. the Momraths. They're just like little pairs of legs with eyes and tufty hair. That's so cute. Like, yeah, don't step on the Momraths, people. I like the dog who's a broom vase. Because <laughs> she finally finds a path and she's so excited. And there's just a dog <laughs> sweeping it away on the other end. <laughs> I love him so much. He's easily my favourite because he's he's such a nuisance. Like, he's totally ruined her day by sweeping the path away. But he's just being a good boy. He's just doing his job. Yeah. He reminds me of the cleaner robot in Wally, who's always following Wally around diligently cleaning up after him. He's just doing his job. He's kind of like Bill the Lizard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Massive respect for anyone who's managed to find a job in this crazy wonderland. He's <laughs> <laughs> great working class characters, proletarian icons. And this is the point. I, I thought this part of the story was interesting because in Tulji Wood, Alice has like a crying breakdown talking about how she's not good at taking her own advice. That felt kind of weird to me to sort of start to... It felt like they were trying to shove a moral into this story that purposefully disregards logic and sense and try and add some kind of emotional arc for Alice. I have to say that didn't work for me. It kind of came out of nowhere and then sort of immediately goes away again. Yeah, that's... I mean, that's why they're always banging on about curiosity as well. That's why you've got Tweedledum and Tweedledee one and Alice not to be curious because that's what she really gets into in this song. The lyrics are, Be patient is very good advice, but the waiting makes me curious. And I'd love the change... Should something strange begin so she's impatient in her everyday life she's curious she wants to find something more i guess she's like a heedless impatient youth again kind of a reflection of the hippie movement that was to come these people who just want change and they just want things to be different and maybe a bit like pinocchio as well who wasn't sort of wanting to settle for that normal life he was trying to pursue creativity but getting into these scrapes and kind of getting ahead of himself on his journey to try and be a real boy is this one of your favorite songs clarice yes because it's such a big mood when she says I give myself very good advice, but I rarely ever yeah. follow it. That's me. <laughs> me every day of the pandemic. Yeah, because I know what I should be doing with my life and I always give everyone else great advice and then I never, ever follow it. So I love this song. And what do I think about Catherine Beaumont's vocal performance? Because we haven't really mentioned that so far, but this is one of several scenes in the film where she's basically talking to herself for a very extended period of time. I love it, except for the fact that it's very confusing that she's also Wendy in Peter Pan and it's the same inflection. She doesn't try and do anything mm. different. I mean, she was like 10, so... <laughs> That's true. I'm being mean to a child actress. <laughs> it's not her fault. It's just that I have such trouble separating the characters of Alice and Wendy. I think she is blessed with, like we said, one of the more interesting characters in these Disney movies so far, that yeah, she has personality. She is curious but she does have a sort of stubborn streak to her. And I love the way that that comes through. I think that comes through a lot on the vocal performance as well. Maybe more so than the animation, to be honest. Yeah, she has to carry so much of the movie as well. Like she is our only through line through this weird plot, through all of these situations. I have not done the maths, but I bet she has more dialogue than any other character in a Disney film to this point, because all those other movies are... You know, there's so many different characters in Cinderella who all get stuff to do apart from Cinderella herself. And in this, it's her for the whole thing, talking her way through this episodic narrative. So after being talked around by the Cheshire Cat, that guy is back. What a weirdo. It sends Alice into the final part of her journey in Wonderland. She heads through a maze, which for me is my Mary Blair image of the week. I'm trying not to bang on.
going on about Mary Blair too much because her stuff is everywhere in this sort of run of films we're in at the moment but that shot of Alice walking through the maze for me was my favourite Mary Blair moment in this film but Alice goes to see the Queen of Hearts she goes to the castle she meets the weird card dudes who are singing their song about painting the roses red they've bought the wrong kind of roses they've planted white roses they're trying to paint them red because as we soon learn the Queen of Hearts has a temper on her and when that temper is invoked aka every five seconds she's desperate to chop off people's heads for me uh, you get this great moment the the cards kind of parading through the grounds of the castle and there's sort of animated wildness all the way through this movie but that again to me felt like a sort of pink elephants reprise sam do you love that moment as as the person who loves when disney gets really trippy like that i like it a lot and that's a mary blair concept as well she designed that whole sequence and we, we can always bang on about mary blair ben. she's only got <laughs> one more movie so no. get it out while we can yeah peter pan's the last one yeah it's great it's not the high point of like pink elephants or the three caballero stuff but yeah this is probably the trippiest visual as, as the cards all march through these minimalist backgrounds and the constantly changing color and things like that my favorite part of this entire sequence is when the white rabbit is introducing the queen and then the little king pops out and pokes him. And so the rabbit goes, and the king. And one guy <laughs> goes, hooray! <laughs> <laughs> Look, there can be a hundred people in a room. And as long as one of those people believes in ye, that guy, that king, he has his one stand. He has his Lady Gaga in that room. Or in fact, no, it would be the Bradley Cooper in the room. So again, there's been kind of a lack of logic and an overriding sense of weirdness throughout this movie. But that really comes to a head here. It feels like... There are no rules here except the rules that the Queen makes, which is, we will play sports with birds, and if I don't like it, I'm going to chop your head off, and then we're going to have a trial. It feels like everything just kind of reaches a real climax at this point of Alice, she's eating the mushrooms again. I love that moment where she becomes huge to intimidate the Queen, and for a few seconds, the Queen is really freaked out by that, and then the other mushroom kicks in. I don't know why she eats both mushrooms at once. Because she can't remember. Right. She can't remember which one's which, so she's just like, let me just eat them both at the same time, which is terrible logic yeah again she's great at advising other people somebody should have given her the advice and not eat both of the mushrooms but yeah it, it's pure weirdness here isn't it it's croquet with flamingos for sticks it's hedgehogs for balls it's a sudden courtroom drama that ends in another chase sequence escaping through the maze and as alice leaves wonderland she kind of goes on a journey backwards through every area of wonderland that she's been through she kind of re-encounters these characters as she rushes back to the real world what do you guys make of the end of this movie it's where that dream element comes back in very heavily. It's like the house of cards starting to fall and the reality is starting to slip away. What I love is that she looks through the doorknob and she sees herself dreaming. So it's her moment of like when you're in a dream and you realize that you're dreaming and trying to wake herself up. She's astrally projected into Wonderland. <laughs> She's having a fallen out of body experience. <laughs> exactly. And it seems like if she has learned anything from this experience based on that song, which represented her like near dear it's not to be curious and not to be adventurous and not to run down the rabbit hole and she quite happily with a, an air of melancholy but without much objection gets up with her sister and walks back into town walks back into posh stuffy oxford to live the rest of her life as a victorian child that seems like the conservative button on this story about a character who wished for something more a character with progressive sensibilities who's been through this nightmare world of her own creation almost and wandered out the other end happy to be accepted back into society and to 
on form once again. That feels like the Walt button on this story. See, to me, if the full-on Wonderland experience is eating the mushroom, she should have just licked the mushroom, man. There's moderation. She she can have an imagination, she can have a fantasy land, but it just doesn't have to be that extreme, do you know? I, I like that when she comes back to reality, uh, her boring sister is still like trying to teach her a lesson. She's fed up of Alice's nonsense. And that's it. It just ends. I think something I appreciated about this film is that it really gets you to Wonderland super quickly. It dives headfirst into that situation. At the end, it spits you right back out the other side. You get about 20 seconds of, she's back in the normal world, and then bang. That's the end. It doesn't leave you on any other kind of note. It's just, she left Wonderland. Wasn't that weird? I mean, we talked a lot before about the difficult balancing act between plot versus shenanigans in movies like Snow White and Cinderella, but here the shenanigans are the point. The shenanigans are the story. So that conflict is no longer at play. It's let's just do antic after antic after antic. Okay, so now that we've had our own trip through Wonderland, should we head back to the real world? Should we break down the lasting legacy and talk about some of the stuff that didn't make it in? Yes, Yes, please. Yeah, okay, let's bounce. So now we've reached Discarded, the section of the show where we go back to the original tale that the filmmakers drew from, looking at all the weird, creepy things that Disney took one look at and said, no way. Which is kind of hard to believe because there is a lot of weirdness in this movie. It doesn't seem like there's that much weirdness that Disney thought, we can't do that. But I'm sure there are things, there are episodes, there are moments from the novel that didn't make it into the film. So uh, Sam and Clarice, because you know this book very well, what didn't make it in from the Lewis Carroll novel? I guess the first thing that we'll have to say is that this is actually a bit of a mashup because Tweedledee and Tweedledum and the flower sequence, they come from Through the Looking Glass, as does the Jabberwocky poem, which the Cheshire Cat is always singing. So the Disney studio have brought aspects of these two books together, I guess the best known elements of through the looking glass of being incorporated into this story. Yeah, the two sequences from the book that don't feature that I'm a bit sad about are one, the chapter where she goes to the Duchess's house and there's the cook with the pepper and the crying baby and they sing a song about it (laughs) and then the baby turns into a pig. I very much enjoy that chapter. And also they cut out the mock turtle and the griffin who sing a song about soup, which I also really enjoy. Right, that's quite surprising because the mock turtle is like a thing. That is a thing as somebody who doesn't know this story massively well, the mock turtle is definitely something I recognise. It's strange that Disney wouldn't have brought that into their adaptation. It's really strange though. He's like this very sad turtle-cow hybrid based on, because like mock turtle soup was a soup that was meant to taste like turtle soup, but it was made from like discarded cow bits, like cow's feet and brains and stuff. So he's the mock turtle because he's got the head and feet of a cow but the body of a turtle he's, he's a freaky dude and he's just unpleasant to look at but there is actually a Disney mock turtle because in 1957 they brought him and Catherine Beaumont's Alice together for a commercial about Jell-O uh, where Alice teaches him how to make Jell-O which I don't know if this was deliberate is also made from cow's feet so yeah I was gonna say was that the link it was like hey gelatin products made from animal bits do you know who else is made from animal bits meet the mock turtle guys <laughs> oh no the Duchess is a horrible friend freak as well right she's got this gigantic head the pig baby the only explanation i found for why this didn't make it in because they actually got quite far down the line with it is that walt thought it was revolting i mean it is That's his words. it is revolting it's horrible and also the implication's quite dark because she just kind of dumps the pig 
But the pig is the baby and she just leaves it in the woods. See, normally I would say, hang on, so explain like what the story is of this lady and this pig baby. And But I know that there is going to be no story here. It is, it is just precisely what it sounds like. There is a lady, she has a pig baby. It's just a thing. You've got to roll with she it. She has a baby and then it turns into a pig and there's a lot right. of pepper in the air. <laughs> Those are the three core elements. So it's a pepper pig. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Another thing that the Duchess has that doesn't make it into the movie is a frog footman, and the frog wears old timey clothes. It's a frog in old timey clothes, yeah, and they didn't Sam's put it thing. in. No, it's my favorite thing. And Disney looked at it, and I guess those guys were like, "No, we don't need it. We've just done one. We've just done <laughs> Mr. Toad. No, we do need the frog footman. He's fantastic. He's a fabulous character. You would say he's a real fabulous character. He's got a friend who's a fish." who is also wearing clothes excellent stuff and he's got a wig he's got a little old like georgian powder puff wig on That's he's cute. got all the accoutrements you need to make it into my heart so what did critics have to say at the time about alice in wonderland did they go with the weirdness did they like it how did this play after cinderella i can't imagine going from that disney movie to this one considering how different they are yeah not great it wasn't necessarily the weirdness that was putting people off it was the fact that it was seen as a massive departure from like the tone of Carol's book. So this is especially the case in Britain where you had the new statesman saying that um, Disney's idea of the book is all chocolate box and music hall. Anything more remote from the original or even idiotically at odds with it would be very hard to imagine. This million pound ineptitude deserves nothing but booze. Ooh, million pound ineptitude. That is harsh. Yeah, but it wasn't received that much better in the States either. The New Yorker uh, said that even though possibly nobody is going to create a visualisation of Alice that won't do violence to the imagery of the piece, even granting a certain latitude for those variations in approach, this is a dreadful mockery of a classic. Oh my god, wow, so they really came out swinging for this one, and and it sounds yeah. like especially not a fan of it as a very popular book and, and how Disney chose to approach it. Some people were a bit more positive. The New York Times said that if you're not too particular about the images of Carol and Tenniel, if you are high on Disney whimsy, possibly the use of the word high is no accident, and if you'll take a somewhat slow, uneven pace, which I think is nonsense because the pace here is very consistent and it's very quick, uh, then you should find this picture entertaining. Well, okay, whatever. I liked it. And so what about the box office? The critics seem to not be massively on board with this one, but did it make a good amount of money? Did the public get on board? Uh, not really. It cost around $4 million to make. It made $2.4 million on its first run domestically at least this wasn't helped by the fact that disney were also engaged with a lawsuit to ban the u.s release of a french stop-motion version of alice in wonderland with a live-action alice so it's almost like they've gone back and nicked walt's other idea they wanted to do it with animated characters and live-action alice the french got there first and walt tried to sue them to stop it being released because it was also called alice in wonderland and that was going to confuse people he didn't manage it and it did confuse people also that film was banned in britain for being offensive to queen victoria the French version. Wait, wait, what, because of the Queen of Hearts stuff? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Queen Victoria is so fragile. Come on. And also, like, dead for 50 years by this <laughs> point. That's very French. <laughs> <laughs> 
But it made its money back in the 1970s because, look, I feel like we've um, hit this button enough, but this is quite a trippy film, right? It's quite psychedelic. It's kind of groovy, right? So you can see why it would become the most popular film to be rented on college campuses in the 1970s, to be like shown <laughs> on college campuses. No way. There's evidence of that. That just all the students who were getting off their tree on, I don't know, LSD and weed and stuff were constantly going out and renting Alice in Wonderland. That's <laughs> Absolutely. And Disney caught wind of this and they were like, oh shit, we need to stop this. So they pulled it. They said, you can't rent this movie anymore to screen uh, in colleges. But a couple of years later, very smart move. They re-released it in cinemas with a really psychedelic poster that kind of, it's the same like color palette of a Jimi Hendrix album cover and commercials featuring the Jefferson Airplane song White Rabbit. And it made three and a half million, more than it made on its original release and easily covering the budget of the movie. That is a smart move. They were ahead of their time. They just waited for the 70s when everyone was getting stoned to the max. Uh, and made their money back. I love that. It's such a tame thing to do when you're at college. <laughs> Let's get wasted and watch, watch Alice in Wonderland. Alice in Wonderland. If you're feeling really freaky, we could get Fantasia. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's so wholesome. Okay, so what about our ratings then? Clarice, what would you give this movie out of five? Where does this stand for you? Oh, it's hard because I can't separate like my personal childhood connection to it. So it's like a full five for me. I understand it may not be for many people. Uh, it's I don't think it is for me, but it's it's good. It's very inventive. You get a lot of different stuff here, and yet it's more consistent than something like a Make My Music, and obviously higher budget than something like Make My Music as well. I think for me, the thing that turned me off a little bit was just watching it as an adult was how horrible everybody was and how relentless and oppressive these like bad vibes are. Like Alice getting into these situations, making somebody furious at her, and then fleeing the scene. Like it, I don't know, it was very anxiety inducing and even my favorite scenes like the tea party is like i feel anxious watching this because it's just these crazy people going at it and i feel like alice the bystander looking for an exit you know like i wish something would make sense yeah 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 i think i'm on the same wavelength as you sam in that i found this one of the most impressive films we've watched so far i think it's their like lushest film since fantasia and pinocchio i think the sort of freewheeling sense of fluidity and the the creativity of the animation is so impressive. I love that about it. But at the same time, yeah, the oppressive weirdness of it is quite a lot to sit through. I can see why kids really like this film because I don't think they would get any of the sort of darker undertones. And I think obviously all the weird drugginess would just go way over their heads. And it is just an explosion of colour and kind of strangeness and music. And I can see why it's really endured. And that I think you could stick a kid in front of this and it wouldn't, wouldn't do them any harm and they would probably really enjoy it. For me as an adult, pretty much watching it for the first time, I don't know if I'd rush to watch Alice in Wonderland again, but it is for me definitely one of the most objectively impressive Disney films we've watched so far. It's just a mood and it's my mood. (laughs) Yeah, if you're in that mood, if you're on that wavelength, then I can imagine there's not much else like it that's going to satisfy that wavelength. That's me. It's my wavelength. I feel like I can happily live in Wonderland. Just chill. If you can chill in Wonderland, I think that says a lot about you. It really (laughs) does. You can chill anywhere. (laughs) 
Now it's time for the part of the show we call Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. In the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there's a whole universe out there for each character. And now Clarice, you mentioned before that Disneyland is your happy place, it is the happiest place on Earth for you, and I imagine there is a lot of Alice in Wonderland presence throughout the various parks. Do you want to guide us through that? Yeah, I haven't crunched the numbers here, but I feel like Alice is the the most represented in the parks in terms of like volume of rides and I guess merchandise stores and restaurants because you have the actual Alice in Wonderland dark ride which was something that at the very beginning of Disneyland's development they were trying to figure out how to incorporate it and they were going to do a walkthrough because a lot of stuff was going to be a walkthrough originally like the Haunted Mansion was going to be a walkthrough and so Alice in Wonderland was essentially going to be a fun house like weird mirrors and upside down things. And uh, Walt Disney realized that people would walk too slowly (laughs) and he didn't want that. He wanted speed and efficiency. So they decided eventually to do a dark ride, but this was after the park had opened and there were like the original three dark rides and they'd sort of run out of room. So that's why the Alice in Wonderland dark ride in Anaheim is the only one that's two levels. There's a little ramp in between and you get in a caterpillar and it's a rough approximation of what the film is. When it originally opened, it it wasn't. It was a random collection of weird things. But during the 1984 Fantasyland refurbishment, they actually put the story in. (laughs) And they also put Alice in because that was the thing originally the dark rides you were meant to be the character but obviously no one understood that because like (laughs) it's a ride (laughs) yeah so you just got i was expecting some alice in my alice in wonderland ride i was expecting some snow white in my snow white ride (laughs) you didn't want to have like disney operators at the beginning of the ride being like now before you get in i need to explain (laughs) to you you are the character you're experiencing it don't eat the mushrooms that's purely metaphorical yeah so they added alice in and they moved a bunch of scenes around but then you also have the mad hatter tea party ride which apparently walt regretted because it didn't capture the heart of the film i don't understand what that means was there a heart to this film other than the the heart of the weirdness like surely the mad hatter's ride would encapsulate that no yeah i guess because it's just spinning teacups and there aren't really like it's outdoors and there aren't really any animatronics of that much theme and beyond the fact that you're in cups but then also spinning around in the teacup at high speeds that's kind of like what it's like to be at the tea party yeah so i don't really get that and then on top of that you have in paris you have a alice maze which i adore it's just the the hedge maze from the queen's castle and then in shanghai they also have a maze but the maze is the alice live action movies because Asia really loves live action Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> I don't know why. They they really dig it. So a lot of the stuff in those parks in, in Tokyo and Shanghai are based off the live action. I have a lot of affection for the, the teacups at Disneyland Paris. I've never been to any of the other Disneylands. I've only ever been to Disneyland Paris. But I went when I was seven and I was kind of too small and too young for a lot of the bigger rides. I remember I didn't go on the Indiana Jones ride. My brother did. <laughs> and he came off um, Uh, at the end and my mum was like did you like that and he just immediately burst into tears 
I was too young for the kind of proper roller coasters, but I remember us doing the teacups. And um, especially as a seven-year-old, I was obsessed with like spinning the wheel in the middle, which I didn't realize made the teacups go faster. So I was there like spinning that wheel like crazy. And we were like flying around, uh, nearly getting skeeted out of this teacup on that ride. That might be the most iconic Disneyland ride. Yeah, it's up there with like maybe Dumbo the Flying Elephant. I would say it's so iconic that actually, I don't know if I would have necessarily associated the teacups ride with the Matt Hatter's Tea Party. It's like such a thing in itself, like a spinning teacups ride. Maybe that's just my perception of it. But um, yeah, I have to say I hadn't necessarily clocked that as an Alice in Wonderland ride. But yeah, you're totally right. It is. Yeah. And the characters are also very, very popular because, you know, a lot of the princesses, they just have to be like, hello, welcome to my grotto. I'm Ariel. But the actors who get to play Alice and the Mad Hatter they often don't do meet and greets they just wander around like being silly I really enjoy that it seems like a dream job oh man I would love to be the Mad Hatter I've got the voice down I'm sure you can agree I don't know if the guys in Disneyland do the voice but that sure is hell word fantastic because otherwise it would be so i would be walking around asking kids whether or not it was their own birthday and then i'd be like yeah happy on birthday oh fabulous stuff man great but when i was a student when i was like at the age where people normally go to work in disneyland it's when the johnny depp movie came out so i would have had to be presumably i'm guessing they replaced some of the mad hatters with johnny depp mad hatters and i would have had to be like naughty naughty oh no i don't (laughs) like that (laughs) no they they actually (laughs) (laughs) that's really good he's like he's here in the room and i really wish he wasn't (laughs) no thankfully the european and american parks have not embraced the live action alice they don't recognize it stuff and neither do i let's just talk about that now shall we i was gonna get to that later but what do we think about those awful movies right i've not seen through the looking glass but i remember being so disappointed by the live action burton one like i've already professed my enjoyment and admiration of his dumbo but for me his alice in wonderland just really doesn't work i think all of us like sam we've talked about how you were a teenage goth clarice i feel like you're still you've still got that gothic energy i definitely had a full-on emo phase and i grew up on tim burton movies like i loved that stuff and as a slightly older teenager i think i was at uni at that point thinking oh wow like tim burton doing alice in wonderland doing lewis carroll that could be an amazing combination and for me i remember seeing it and just thinking other than the surface uncanny creepiness it didn't feel very tim burton to me and it didn't feel very lewis carroll either like i don't love the visual look of it but as over stylized as that is i think underneath it it feels like a really bland movie to me i think the live action wonderland is maybe the most burnt i've ever been by a film because you know i was teenage goth as with the ui i grew up on tim burton films was obsessed with the book and when they announced it it was that feeling of you know when they announce something and you just go well this is the movie for me (laughs) like this is the greatest thing this is gonna be the. i was in exactly the same place yeah and i remember sitting on youtube watching the trailer over and over again being like i can't believe this is happening this is all my dreams come true sitting in the cinema i watched it in 3d watching a teacup fly at my face forcing myself to try and fake enjoyment because i couldn't emotionally deal with the disappointment I was feeling so I was trying to go 
No, I mean, the costumes are good. <laughs> For you and I, that is our Phantom Menace moment. Because I was, like, too young to really get... Like, I was a fan of Star Wars, but then when I saw Phantom Menace, I was still, like, a little kid, so I hadn't had, that like, years and years of building up anticipation for it and then having a light in myself. Like, you hear all those stories about people who saw the Phantom Menace and it was like, yeah, I, I told myself it was incredible when I watched it and then I got home and I was like, man, that was me and it feels like that was you with the Burton Alice in Wonderland because it was so, like ticking all of my boxes. I was really into Burton. I was really into Carol. This was the year after I dressed up as the Mad Hatter for Halloween. And I did an A-level project on the marketing for Alice in Wonderland. That's how hype I was for that movie. <laughs> they said, you've got to do a project on a marketing campaign. And I was like, ho, 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 rubs hands together. There's only one movie for me. That was like the start of your Disney scholarship. It all began I right guess there. so. What a movie to kick it off with. And I hate that Johnny Depp Mad Hatter. That was the point that the Depp Burton and stuff just became sort of a real self-parody it became costume and mannerisms over everything else and yeah just what a disappointment have either of you guys seen through the looking glass do you have any sort of thoughts and feelings on that clarice you look deeply upset at the mere mention of it i will say it maybe looks a little better there are some interesting designs sasha brown cohen father time like clockwork outfit is great the story is all i'm trying to remember the story because i've mostly forgot i think it opens with her in an asylum it does the whole Alice video games Alice the Madness Returns storyline of her being institutionalized for believing in Wonderland I think Andrew Scott is the doctor I might be misremembering this oh that's pretty good I don't mind that oh okay fair (laughs) enough I haven't seen it I was gonna watch it for this but I didn't have time Should I watch it, Clarice? No, because he tries to do that new Disney thing of, like, girl boss Alice. (laughs) Because she she has something about she wants to oversee her father's shipping enterprise. And they say, no, because you're a girl, so we're going to put you in an asylum. And so she has to go to Wonderland for some reason. What is so annoying about these films is just the idea that you've taken this very simple, fun, sweet children's story and gone oh but what if it was like lord of the rings and she had to fight the jabberwocky i think they struggle with the plot stuff anyway right because the burton one it's weird it comes at it from a weird angle like she's grown up but she was in wonderland as a kid and she's returning to wonderland it's like they're trying to force plots onto this story that kind of exists through the fact that it kind of has no plot that it is weird encounter after weird encounter And I can understand why you'd maybe have an instinct to go, well, we need to kind of put more of a narrative in place, but maybe this kind of story doesn't lend itself to that. No, just make the movie, just make the book and it will be nice. It doesn't have to be like a billion dollar franchise. (laughs) But it became that, didn't it? Because the film was a huge financial success. A billion dollars. It made a billion. And this was back when that was not normal. You know, there was like five movies that made a billion dollars before this. I feel like it's probably one of the weakest billion dollar grossing movies ever made. Oh, well, I I think, like, the last four Transformers movies all did it, but other than that, I mean, this got the Avatar bump, because this was, like, the first really big 3D IMAX movie after Avatar, so I think that's the only possible explanation, and I guess Johnny Depp was doing quite well at this point. And Hot Topic, just that entire thing, the vibe of Alice in Wonderland. I think was very attracted to a lot of teen goths. They had like Avril Lavigne and like Robert Smith on the soundtrack. I know that neither of those scream teen goth anymore, but um, yeah, that seemed like what they were going for. Oh, and Franz Ferdinand did a version of the Lopsa Quadrille, which I actually love. It's great. Listen to it. (laughs) 
That's cool. I feel like that should be filed alongside Arcade Fire's Baby Mine in uh, good indie band takes on songs from Disney movies in live action adaptations made by Tim Burton. I feel like that would be a category on Letterboxd or something. So has there ever been a great live action Alice in Wonderland? Has there ever been a better Alice in Wonderland than the Disney version, than the animated version? My favourite is one of the least well-known ones. It's a 1999 made-for-television adaptation for NBC and it's got Tina Majorino as Alice like a slightly older Alice but she's wearing the yellow dress which is kind of mm. the original original Alice dress mm. instead of the blue not one a fan. you're not a fan of the yellow dress I'm blue all the way oh. is that a big schism in the Alice fan community whether you're blue or yellow Alice <laughs> I just love that they've cast all these brilliant comedic actors as Gene Wilder as the mock turtle so it's Gene Wilder's head on a turtle body <laughs> and then he sings the soup song and there's an actual beautiful soup so do 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 and then a mad hatter is martin short and it's so frantic it, like it's as frantic as the animated version but it's martin short doing it so you can imagine that I just like it because it's, I think, a little bit more faithful than a lot of the other adaptations I've seen. And it's got this quite theatrical, handmade quality to it because the costumes are a bit weird. And, like, the cat is just Whoopi Goldberg's face on a cat body. <laughs> oh, my God, that just makes me think of what we do in the shadows with Jermaine Clement's face on the cat. I, that's what I'm imagining it right now. It actually looks exactly like that. Just imagine that, but it's Whoopi Goldberg and she's a cat. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Clarice, you grew up in Prague. Have you seen the Czech version, the 1988 Jan Schwankmeyer version? I've seen bits of it. I don't think I've ever seen the whole film, though. That is worth a watch. That's on Amazon Prime, but it's on Amazon Prime in the dub, which kind of sucks. That is like a terrifying live-action stop-motion hybrid where all the animals are like actual taxidermied animals or just skeletons, and the caterpillar is a sock with human teeth. <laughs> oh no, I don't like that. I, I, I'll leave you guys to watch that. <laughs> Count me out of that one. Yeah, Ben, you would hate it. Clarice, I think you would like it. Check it out. Yeah, I will check it out. Thank you. Oh, there's also, in the 2000s, they did Malice in Wonderland, which was a version set in the London criminal underworld. It was originally going to be set, this is not a joke, in the Sunderland criminal underworld, and it was going to be called Malice in Sunderland. And it was going to be about a girl from the South who gets into a magic taxi and ends up in Sunderland on a night. People from the South, you know you can get to the North just, like, on a train, and it's a normal, nice place, you know? And then instead, for whatever reason, they relocated it to London and cast... Mr. Danny Dyer as the White Rabbit. Oh my god. See, now this is the version that I need to watch. Danny Dyer. Oh, he's late. He's late for a very important day. Oh my god. I think he's just dressed as a bloke. I haven't actually <laughs> seen it. I just know that it exists. We need to have a watch party for this. Yes. Okay, no, I can confirm that he is just dressed as a bloke. Yeah, okay, so we've got to check that out. But the live-action version of Disney's Alice in Wonderland that I really want to talk about is the 1992 Disney Channel show Adventures in Wonderland. Have either of you seen this show? No. no. I've never heard of it. So this was actually a huge hit at the time. It was one of the first like massive hits on the Disney Channel after it launched. And it was kind of a Sesame Street idea that we're going to teach kids about language and the thought that the best Disney property to use for that would be Alice in Wonderland because the original book is so concerned with language and playing with language. 
It's set in the 1990s, featuring Alice, who lives in a suburban American neighbourhood and travels through a looking glass to Wonderland, well, through her bedroom mirror to Wonderland, whenever she has a problem with her English homework or something, whenever she has an issue that can only be solved by learning about language with all of our favourite Wonderland characters. The ones I want to highlight are the White Rabbit, who wears extensive makeup, like full-on Jim Carrey and the Grinch style, unbreathable furry body costume and loads of makeup on his face, right? And yet, he also um, wears rollerblades in every scene. Because why wouldn't he, you know? If you were late for a very important date, having roller skates would really help with that. I think that was the suggestion, but the actor was not only wearing this insane costume, but also had never rollerbladed before, so there's loads and loads of bloopers of him crashing into things in every scene. Please tell me that's on YouTube. It's on YouTube. Um, He also has a brother called Rabbit De Niro, who's an actor. Oh, God, that's a laboured pun. (laughs) Do you not like that? I'm not a fan of Rabbit De Niro. (laughs) Hey, I'm Rabbit De Niro. Oh, my. You're talking to me? That's that's my my worst impression so far today. (laughs) It was weak. (laughs) And that is it for this week's class. Clarice, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a joy to have you on the show, having another expert here. I thought I was going to have somebody else in my corner. You've been like a co-presenter for Sam. You've been a co-lecturer this week. It's been a delight. Thanks for being here with us and thanks for picking a great film. Oh, thank you for inviting me on. I feel like I was the person in class who just keeps putting their hand up to <laughs> contribute. <laughs> well, I think you're going to get a better grade than me in Disneyversity, let me tell you. Yay. We like that person. If you're a student listening at home, you'll be that person. Well, might tell you to calm down sometimes but we always appreciate the hand going up yeah channel your inner Hermione you know um (laughs) but where can people find you I mean the answer to that is everywhere right because you are so busy you've got reviews every week in uh the independent you're also on tons of podcasts where can people find your stuff I have four podcasts at the moment (laughs) my main film podcast is fade to black with my friends Hannah and Amon and then I have an American horror story themed podcast with my friend Anna (laughs) I've just started a book club as well we're reading Little Women so if you want to join in on that and I'm also doing a podcast slash video cast with Prime Video where we're doing kind of like grudge matches between movies (laughs) so it's a lot of fun Um, maybe one day I'll bring Alice along and argue for her Is there going to be a full episode of the Little Women podcast where you just just talking about the little pictures of Timothy Chalamet in the middle of the booth. They're definitely going to be mentioned, for sure. Tune into that one. They're little rippable postcards. You can rip them out and take them home. And where can people follow you on Twitter? Because you, you share links to all of these things that you're involved with on Twitter. That's probably one of the easiest places to find them. Uh, yeah, where can people follow you online? At Clarice Lou. So start just typing my name in as I did and then realise that you've run out of characters. <laughs> I imagine that was your experience of trying to sign up for a Twitter account. In fact, Sam, I've never asked you where people can follow you. We don't really share our personal handles on this, but Sam, where can people find you? Fantastic. I am on Twitter at Sam Summers and then the number zero. If you want to follow me, I'm at Ben S. Travis. The S stands for Simon. That was my first tweet. But yeah, go and follow Clarice. Go and listen to her very many, very great podcasts. And yet, join us again for next week's seminar when we'll be flying off to Neverland and scrapping with Captain Hook alongside our good pal, Peter Pan. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review, we'll thank you by chopping off the heads of all your enemies. Sam, you can be in charge of the chopping. I don't want to be part of that business. For now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Clarice. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Thanks so much for listening. 
Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Thank you.